Today on Never Was a Gamer, I pretend to know what a gaster is. Welcome to Never Was a Gamer, the show where a late-blooming gamer makes up for lost time playing everyone else's formative games. I'm Michelle, and with me as always is, what would your Undertale skeleton name be, Dimitri? Like, what font best represents you as a person? I reject the premise. <laughs> I, I'm, not, I'm not part of that dodo skeleton family. Never <laughs> can be. Not going to pretend that I could be. I think your Times New Roman. <laughs> Great. The default. <laughs> That's been the default since like 2001. <laughs> <laughs> the old default. Yeah. The Nathan Drake. The- <laughs> Accurate. Uh, yeah. So we're here today to talk about Undertale. It's part two in our three-part arc called Playing in Michelle's Wheelhouse, where we, you know, because it's the end of the year, play games that should be right in Michelle's wheelhouse. If we you- were 0 for 1 coming into this yeah, episode. Yeah. <laughs> if you listen to our last episode on system shock you'll know that we we failed swing and a miss and so this time though i think we succeeded michelle had the right amount of determination yes to see through to the end of undertale finally making time for this game fills you with determination and you know if you've been listening to this show throughout the years i think it would come as no surprise as to why i might have thought that this was a game that would fit within michelle's wheelhouse she's very much into JRPGs, and this is obviously a very JRPG-inspired game. Um, she likes games that have a have a good heart, one could say. I feel like you're being shady with this, but no. it is accurate. <laughs> not. Yeah. I'm being, I, yes. I'm being as sincere as this game. You are not capable of being as sincere <laughs> as this game. <laughs> but yeah, I think I think you know we understand we can understand why this might be something that appeals to you. So the big question is why haven't you played this before? Yeah. Uh, so I I kind of did. I tried to. And in what I figure was early 2017, so not right when it came out, but shortly afterwards. Okay. So this is uh, this could have been a game you bounced on. It absolutely could have, um, which I think I mentioned. So yeah, I played basically up until the guard dog part, which if you know the structure of this game, that's sort of pretty early in the first area outside the tutorial zone. Yeah. So this is like... This was a pretty early bounce. It's when you're still figuring out what this game is up to. And that is very much part of the context, I think, Hmm. of why I think I just kind of got overwhelmed with it. Like looking back at it, I mean, I think there's two main reasons I bounced initially, one of which I still kind of feel, which is I was annoyed by tutorials babying you in the beginning okay which like let's unpack what happened sure there, sure in case people haven't played sure so in the sort of tutorial um level of of this game that starts off you're playing as this human child who has fallen through the earth and finds themselves in the realm of monsters that humans sealed off many many years ago after a war between the humans and the monsters so the first or very quickly you encounter this um, lovely sort of maternal monster named Toriel who uh, takes your child main character under her wing and brings them to her house and is saying she'll sort of take care of them in a substitute mother role, but that they always have to stay there in the ruins. They can never leave. Um, And she like 
it's very like I understand the the point and function of this now in the game, but it doesn't change the fact that I do still find it a little bit grating going through it. Her name is Toriel, and you're surprised that she was a tutorial. Oh my god! <laughs> oh no! I am so goddamn stupid. <laughs> oh, no. She literally holds your hand. <laughs> okay. Do you ever just like kind of hate yourself for five <laughs> seconds? But okay. <laughs> So, okay, but okay, but so but the, let me explain the, okay. the intensity. Like, so handholdy tutorials is like a haha joke, but like she literally is like taking you by the hand and like doing early puzzles for you, and then like gives you an independence test where you just have to walk horizontally through a room by yourself. Yeah, like it's it's like meant to be really really over the top, but that doesn't mean that it's like necessarily really fun to play. Sure, it lasts for about. Two minutes right. also. I mean, the game I find does this uh, a lot at the beginning, and it does... I found it more grating later on when you're dealing with some of the Sans Papyrus mm-hmm. puzzles that we'll yep. talk about, where the game is poking fun at tropes, but they do so by making you play through them. And so the joke is, notice how tropey and kind of boring this is while you're enacting it. Yes. And, you know, and it's always it's always hard to critique something while forcing the, you know, the player or the viewer, to whatever medium, it. to experience it. Yeah, yeah. And I think I think the game rubs up against that. I, I will agree with that. Yeah. But but this section is like 30 seconds. Oh, it's, it's very brief. Although, so that so that's one thing. Um, okay. So I understand why that as an opening to the game, playing a child character and having this be how... Because I, at the time, I really didn't know what this game was about. I had, I really, really hadn't been engaged with press about it. I knew it had a really devoted and intense uh, fan base, and that people really respected it. But like, I didn't know like the big thing about the mechanics, okay. which we'll get to. I didn't know what to expect at all, and so I didn't know that this was just this character specifically respond. Like, I don't know. It just. I was thrown off, which is part of the point. That is like a correct reaction. And then the other thing is that in the beginning, the first time I played it, I was super bad at the bullet hell sort of part of the battle system. And so I ended up dying a bunch. There were very few healing items in the in the beginning of the game, probably because they're not expecting you to be as bad at as as I was. But- and the first time you played, you played on PC, which might yeah. you know make it actually a little bit more difficult to navigate some of those sections if you're not used to... Yeah, I mean, your that, keyboard. that's being generous to me, but thank you. But I mean, so yeah, it's it's partially because of factors that actually ended up being some of my favorite parts of the game on this revisiting. Um, like, essentially, I was just overwhelmed by the feeling that there was sort of like stuff going on under the hood that I didn't fully understand and therefore wasn't like playing the game mm. right. Like I just had constantly had the feeling that I was like doing this wrong somehow. You know, I I would like start killing guys to try to level up a bit, which felt weird. And it just in the, especially in this sort of very childlike context of the early sections of this game, it something felt really off and really unnerving and really wrong. Which like in hindsight, I don't think is a wrong response to have to this game. I think just like where I was in my thinking about games and about what I was playing. I wasn't able to parse that out and like do something productive with it. I just sort of like got overwhelmed and like got to died on one of the guard dogs and then was like, I, I don't know. I don't know. And, and kind of bounced off. Right. And and just so we can figure out what happened the first time. So the first time you play it, if you got to the guard dogs, that means you got past the first kind of Toriel battle. Did you attack her the first time? I think I did. So I I'm struggling to remember what I 
what I did with Toriel, I think I probably fought her because I I was going through killing some guys and I hadn't really successfully figured out the 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 whole like sort of pacifist side of the battle system, which we'll get into. Um, so I have a feeling I I fought Toriel okay. until I left. So it makes sense, especially if you you know if you were approaching this and playing it your first playthrough as you would play a traditional JRPG why you might have been feeling off because the game i think very much was trying to tell you that maybe you're doing something wrong it was trying to make you feel uneasy but if if you don't know what kind of game this is and you're not primed for that then you might just feel uneasy and not and not you know realize that those cues are actually real cues yeah well and and this was also like peak period of me feeling insecure about being bad at things Mm. and like not wanting to dig deeper if i if i couldn't figure things out quickly so i don't know i think i'm just like in a very different place Hmm. with my relationship with the medium at this point and so i mean to be fair i also now entered with a little bit of very basic knowledge about like going into it this time i knew there was such thing as a pacifist run or a genocide run. Mm-hmm. And that is a big hint, let's just say, to how to what is going on in this game. Yeah. And the, I, before we get to that, the other thing I think you knew, because we, and we alluded to this last time, and I, I mean, you mentioned it, but I'd like you to dig into it a little bit more, is this idea of the fandom around the game. Uh, and I know that, I don't know if you found the fandom off-putting, but it put <laughs> you off of the game. Yeah. Uh, so I haven't had a lot of direct dealings with the fandom. I was like active on Tumblr during some of the period where where Undertale was a big thing. That wasn't exactly like where I hung out, but I knew enough that you know who the other major players are, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I knew that had a very active, very sort of um some of the group that would go on to love Steven Universe. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a not everyone will understand what I mean by that, but if you know, you know, you know. Um, Didn't you love Steven Universe? I, I do really like Steven Universe, but not in the way that people who love right. Steven Universe okay. love Steven Universe. Um, so, you know, sort of a mix of like tenderhearted and also really intense. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I I picture skewing a little younger than me, sometimes considerably younger than me. Um so that that's sort of my my impression. I, I think, and I know you don't respond well to this, and I think a lot of people don't, don't respond well to this. So people who hadn't played the game kind of initially when it came out were put off by it because so many people were telling them that they had to play it. Mm, yeah. But then being coy about why they had to play it. Right. And, and also I imagine being like, oh, I can't tell you what the twi- like, I can't tell you anything about it. You just have to trust me. Yeah. Which like does make sense. I understand why, mm-hmm. but it's annoying to hear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and I know that was a big, you know, that was kind of a big part of the uh, the kind of the backlash against the fandom yeah. at the time. Um, and really, what I think what's interesting about this game is that you can't divorce this game from its fandom or from fan culture in general. So this game com- came out in 2015. Uh, it was designed primarily by one person, Toby Fox, though he had um, help with the art uh, by Temi. Temi makes an appearance as a as a creature in the game. <laughs> or at least gives her name to a creature in the game. But Toby Fox got his start in fandom uh, as part of the Homestuck fandom. Oh, that checks out. He contributed a lot of music to the fandom and was recognized by the community and then eventually by the creators of it. He was also part of the Earthbound modding community. Uh, he built this game in Game Maker as you know, his first his first project. And you know, he he kickstarted this game in 2013. And you know, a lot of the backers would have been people who knew him from the Homestuck fandom, right? So it's it's kind of the self-replicating cycle. What's interesting, though, about the the campaign is that so it launched with a demo, which was 
I think I think you know the first kind of the tutorial section and okay. I don't know if it went much beyond that. But you know a big part of the pitch of the Kickstarter campaign was that there was there was going to be this ability to spare monsters that you could get through the game without killing anything. Right? So this thing that I think you know players coming to it afterwards might think was you know the game's big secret is actually upfront the the major selling point of the game. So that most is so people, interesting. So most people coming into the game would have been would have known that and would have been expecting it, which kind of differs from you know your perspective and and your experience with it. And I think would have helped onboard you a bit better had you known that that was actually the point of the game, or at least one one way that you could play the game that was not only um, possible but maybe encouraged. Yeah, what's interesting about that too is like you know, if what he was saying was just you will be able to spare monsters in this game as an option, that that's sort of much more of a process or experiential based thing. Whereas the way I encountered all this was about outcomes, was much more about like choosing the path to this route and sort of sticking with it, mm. um, which I think is also something that like applies a bit of pressure on you early on to like really figure out like what kind of playthrough is this from the beginning as opposed mm-hmm. to sort of like muddling through. That's so interesting. I didn't know that at all. Yeah, and it's and again, it's this challenge of the game. I think you know, wanting to push players in a direction, so really wanting to encourage um, one of the two extreme runs, either you know, a full pacifist run where you go through and you don't kill anything, or a full genocide run where you literally kill everything, where you do enough of the randomized battles that there is nothing left to attack you. Right, and uh, you know, kind of wanting players to go in one of those directions, I think. Um, privileging the pacifist run, but not wanting to push the player too hard, so it still seems like the player is making some kind of choice. And I know that's got to be a very delicate balance mm-hmm. to find, right? Mm-hmm. How you kind of do that. But you know, on the first go, I do think that the game wants you to have one of these hybrid runs. Um, a because you can't actually complete the full pacifist run on your first run; mm-hmm. you kind of have to loop back, regardless of whether you killed enemies or not. And B, because at the end of this tutorial, you do... So at the end of the tutorial, you confront Toriel, uh, who is, like Michelle said, this motherly creature. I feel stupid every time I hear that name for the rest of my life. (laughs) I'm so embarrassed. Um, And, you know, you're asking her, you're saying, you know, I want to kind of leave your home. I need to venture out. I got to try to get back home. And she wants to keep you. And so you have to battle her. And you can end that peacefully. But you have to choose the mercy option twenty six times. Right. Uh, it takes forever. Right. So I so I think you know just due to the fact that you have to do that so many times that a player coming in might just even a player who knows that you can spare most enemies might just think that oh maybe this must be one that I just can't spare. Yeah, because like you wh- try that three or four times and that's like I'm not getting anywhere with it. There's not like evolving dialogue necessarily yeah, right, for it, a long it time. It kind of evolves to a point and yeah. then and then stops and so you feel like you've run out of your options. So I do think that the game you know nudges somebody into a hybrid a hybrid playthrough which gives them kind of the neutral ending mm-hmm. and then you cycle back from the beginning on your second playthrough and would do a, a full pacifist run. Right. It was interesting to me when I came, when I restarted for this time, um, your very first encounter is with this uh, creature called Flowey, like flower, but ending in a Y. Um, and he starts out looking nice and then he turns bad and like uh, d- attacks you with a little thing. And, you know, the first time I played through this years and years ago, I think I probably just fought Flowey because like I wouldn't have known any better and you're attacking me. Self-defense. 
Um, this time I tried to just sort of dodge and and not kill mm. him. And he gave me different text, which was, uh, you know what's going on here, don't you? Um, so I don't know if that was the game intuiting that like somehow either I had heard like what is up here or that I had already played or something like that. But I like I def that's a different response than I would have gotten. That's on the first enemy. In that case, it would be that it the you know, the game quote unquote just yeah. assumes that you know what's going on with the game going in. Because the game does keep track of what you do in all of your runs and will respond to it moving forward. Uh which is which is an interesting part of, of the game and we can talk about that when we talk about the implications of a genocide run, which I've never done. Yeah. Uh, partly because I know the game would remember that I have done yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. And I don't like that. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm very curious to watch a genocide run like on YouTube or Twitch or something like that, but I don't want it on my hard drive. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so maybe, you know, we talked about how you bounced the first time. So what changed this time, apart from the fact that you're probably feeling a lot of guilt from not finishing System Shock, and so you really had to not finish really. this one? <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, going back through that tutorial section with Toriel. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> did anything change for this time or was it all, was it again, just kind of this annoying section that you had to get through? So it's, it's still, you know, not the funnest part of the game, I don't think. But this time, you know, a couple of things are different. One, I had pre-decided that I was going to finish it because we're doing it. You know, I kind mm -hmm. of made a commitment, which is different than like, popping up a game you've heard recommended where you're like, yeah, if I don't like it after an mm -hmm. hour, I'm going to bounce off. Um, and also, I just think I'm a little bit more, I think I understand and I'm a little bit more confident in like my tastes and my assessment and my like engagement with games. And so uh, it was actually much more fun this time to explore that space and go through that process and sort of think it through. A, like knowing sort of the big core idea about pacifist and genocide and all that stuff. Um and not being so pressed about like figuring out what th the hell is happening here. And I was able to more just like relax into the weirdness of mm. it. And you, boy, you really have to be able to relax into this game's vibe. Okay, so yeah, do you want to describe what that vibe is? Because I, I was really curious to know how you would respond to it. Because I thought that, you know, either you would... You would really respond to it positively or complete opposite, where it would rub you completely the wrong way and you would, you know, really slog your way through the game's sense of humor um, and it, and its earnestness. Because I know in sometimes I know I think with most people that uh, that type of, you know, tone works for you and other times it, it can be really grating. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I would say there's a very high success rate for this game with me this time through on both of those counts, but not 100 percent success rate is what I would say. There are there are. A handful of notes in this game that felt pretty off or pretty wrong or pretty grating or pretty like troublesome to me. But at the same time, certainly by the time I like got to Snowden, like I'm charmed by a bunch of little things in this game. And like a lot of the little delights in this game are actually going to carry me through a really long way. So that's like fine seeing the spider bake sale in the tutorial level. There's nothing to explain about that. It's just a spider bake sale. You can buy muffins and then it pays off later when you meet uh, Miss Muffet, who's like a spider boss. You fight this set of or you encounter this set of guard dogs that are like these like little what cute white Pomeranian things like in armor that you have to like engage with differently to survive. Just so, so charming. And then I think, you know, kind of the kind of an example of a point where the game does the thing that we said 
doesn't work or is tricky with Toriel, but does it well is like, by the time I got to the shop in Snowden, so when you go into the little like item shop thing, right? And you finally got in there after wandering out of the ruins and the blah, blah, blah. You have the shopkeeper's menu is something like um, buy, sell, talk, exit. And then if you choose talk, it's like, say hello, history of your people, your life, about your... It's just like so the categorical like RPG here, the things you can talk mm-hmm. about with a shopkeeper. But the thing that really won me over I, is... I mean, there aren't a lot of JRPGs where you can chat with your shopkeepers. I guess that's somewhat true. But there, it's such a class... It's just like naming exactly the questions you can ask in JRPGs right. to NPCs, you know? Um, but the real thing that I loved was... When you go back, you can buy some stuff from her. That's all good. If you choose the sell option in the menu, she gets super offended and is like, <laughs> what is this, a pawn shop? I don't want your garbage. Like, get out of here. I'm trying to make money here. Which, like, that joke doesn't overstay. It's welcome. I mean, it is a consistent thing that, like, shopkeepers don't necessarily want to buy your shit mm-hmm. in this game. So that's a mechanic that stays. But I don't know. It just was, like, surprising. It doesn't push too far, but it's, like a fun, funny thing that I didn't see coming. And then like, we're moving on. Um, So yeah. And I mean, it's kind of the same with a lot of the earnestness of tone. I mean, I think, I think the more earnest characters tend to be my less favorite in this game. I think I like vibe much better with like your papyrus, your undyne, you know, Okay, Although so, Papyrus is very sincere too. So I guess but, let's set up these characters you meet. So you're, sure. you're in Snowden and you meet two of these kind of major characters. Pretty early on. Uh, the first one you meet, I think, maybe overall people's favorite character. Definitely generally. the one I would have recognized and been able to name in advance of playing this game. Yeah. Probably the only one I could have named. Yeah, the skeleton Sans. Yeah. And then his, uh, he's the Luigi to his Mario, yeah. <laughs> his brother Papyrus. The yeah. uh, dumber, slender, taller one. The, the like try hard, uh, <laughs> desperate for approval and friendship, funny tall one. Yeah. Yeah, so and and you're going to encounter both of them a bunch of times through this game and you can your relationship with them can follow a bunch of different paths. And I mean interestingly because uh, again in in this game you can spare any character, you can also kill any character and relatively early on you you get into this battle with Papyrus. Yep. And if you kill Papyrus, you do not see Sans again until the end. Oh, that I mean that makes sense. You kill his brother. Yeah, and then he shows up at the end to judge you. Sure. Yeah, whereas in this, you know, Sans is all is kind of in every town. Like you're going to mm-hmm. see him regularly. He pops up, makes some jokes, says something about what your next. You know, he's sort of one of your guides through this entire yeah. process. And I mean, this is a this is a common thing with every enemy. So not not just the main characters, but you know, enemies that you spare, you will likely see them uh, among towns mm-hmm. later on. And th- and this is something for Toby Fox that was really important. He wanted every monster to feel like an individual, not just to feel like generic monster to fight. Yep. And so a lot of these, you know, quote unquote enemies will show up later. But if you had killed them, they won't show up. That's cool. And um, yeah, I-, I remember the first time I played it, I actually killed the guard dogs that, <gasps> that you mentioned earlier. Oh my God. And you- You monster. And later on, you kind of go to the- in Snowden, there's like a town bar, and on that place they're not there. But if you if you're on a pacifist run, they're there in the bar. Yeah, they're chilling. Yeah, and so it's so yeah, knowing kind of having when I played through it first, going through kind of that neutral run where I was just kind of you know finding my footing as I went, but I did actually you know kill some things. 
um, and then going through it after pacifist and seeing, you know, those characters that I killed are now populating the towns. It, it It's really effective. Yeah. Well, and what's interesting about that is it's dependent on multiple runs. Like this isn't a game necessarily that I get, I think will directly explain to you the consequences mm-hmm. of your action. Like, it's not like you went into that bar and everyone's like, where are the guard dogs? I hope the guard dogs are coming. Right. You know, it's just like, you could easily just think that not realize that they even could have mm-hmm. could have been there. So yeah, that's that's the kind of stuff that I appreciate. And I think also like it is very earnest, but there is still like a little bit of a playfulness around a lot of the earnestness that makes it palatable for me. Also, I just like I understand that that's what it's trying to do at the gate, which means that I'm like ready to be I'm more prepared to have some patience or tolerance for that, you know what I mean? Um this is not a game that you I think I could play if I'm like really in a bad mood or mm-hmm. like already annoyed with some, you know, like I think I, you have to meet this game at the right time. Um, and actually that, that is also some of the context for some of the things that rubbed me wrong. Hmm. I think. Yeah. I guess overall, one of my favorite things about this game and something that, you know, consistently draws me in in games is that um, it's just full of mystery, like the world, the characters, sometimes how things work or what you can or can't do. And, you know, some of some of the things that I actually really liked are things that have no clear detectable purpose, but feel too elaborate or developed to just be flavor with no impact on the world. Like there's in Snowden still to just stay with that that part of the game. Um, There's a screen to the north of the main town where there's a machine producing these giant like a meter by a meter ice cubes. And there's this huge muscle dog character lifting them up and chucking them into the river that runs behind Snowden. And if you go to the next screen to like the east of Snowden, you can see the ice cubes floating down the river in the background. Does it not feel like, oh, there should be something I can do at some point with these ice things in the water (laughs) or like this dog or like, oh, there's this big machine that makes big ices. Is that doesn't that feel like it would be something? <laughs> it's just like a weird little curio that exists in this game. That's like you didn't you didn't have to put that <laughs> in so, there. So this is this is something this game does very well, and I think is partially what inspires such an extensive fandom around yep. it. That there is so much stuff in it, and it's often unclear whether anything is just a throwaway joke or whether it has meaning. And Toby Fox is very he's not somebody who is. Uh, highly interviewed sure and i think you know stayed you know stays kind of relatively silent about these things it just lets people you know do as they will with them and i think you know some things he has very very deep lore reasons for including and other things probably not and then the you know people just kind of go nuts around that kind of stuff and just you know expand it and and tease it out and often you know i think they see things where there's not really a there there sure but you know it's he understands how to build a game that will build that kind of fandom around it. He understands what kinds of seeds to plant that will resonate with people. Yep. And um, I'm sure he couldn't have foreseen exactly how how much it blew up. Yeah. But I think based on where he comes from and his own his own background, that he has a very savvy understanding of of you know how to pique curiosity enough to allow people to kind of spiral out of control with their own theories while leaving blank space on the map. Yes. Like that's the key thing is like leaving the holes there that mm-hmm. invite filling in. So, I mean, I also like something like this because it sort of further blurs the line between what we would classically call NPCs and like other 
the things that are just in the world. Like, that's one of the things that I like about how a lot of the random enemy encounters go is that because of the the way, the different way that you have to talk and interact with each of them based on their own characteristics mm -hmm. and personality traits they're presenting, um, it makes them feel closer to being characters mm -hmm. in the game than I think just about any random battle enemies that I can think of in another yeah, game. And again, yeah, that was a big part of the philosophy behind the game where yeah. it's everything in this world, every creature exists. And and the player's meant to feel them as existing within this world. So if you do choose to kill them, that absence is felt. Yeah, yeah. And it just feels like there's so many things going on, as I said, under the hood and kind mm -hmm. of out of sight that you're like, I don't I don't know, did I just miss that thing with right. the, so with it's the, the ice? Stuff that the stuff that kind of put you off at first is the stuff that actually hooked yeah. you moving forward. Yeah, that's exactly it. Um and you know, that whole effect is like sort of unnerving or keeps you on the back foot, but in a way that I think is is really great and is really fun to go through and, and experience now. I mean, it does take, I think, right, a, a certain type of player, at least a player who's comfortable enough with their own experiences with games to just allow that stuff to go by, yeah. right? And, and not have the experience you had your first time where you feel like you're missing something and that if you don't figure out the thing you're missing, then you can't enjoy the game. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Like anyone who wants to be kind of completionist about it right out the gate is going to have a really frustrating time <laughs> with this. Um, so yeah, I mean, that that's like an example of how the sort of mystery works at its best. Um, at its worst, sometimes it produces effects that make me feel sort of disconnected from my actions, um, which I think this game really wants you to feel connected to your actions and mm -hmm. your your lower, you know, your little C choices, not your capital C Mass Effect choices, but your little moment to moment decisions in your interactions. And I guess with this, one of the things that I think about actually is that first fight against Papyrus in Snowden. And the reason it comes to mind is I'm still not 100% sure how I advanced things in that fight. Um, I don't, I still, I, I successfully, Mercy spared him. I went on a date with him, like we're best buds, but I don't actually know what I did in that like battle that made it successful. I don't know if I did the right combination of talk prompts. I don't know if I just had to survive a certain number of rounds and he tires himself out. I don't know if you have to hit mercy a certain number of times. And I mean, I'm sure if I did a cursory look online, there's an answer to that question. But the point is that in a game that wants you to be so thoughtful about your interactions with the characters it feels kind of bad mechanically. Like I'm not learning when that happens. Like I, I'm not feeling my character making progress with this other character. I just lived long enough for the battle to run itself out. And that creates a situation where sometimes on bosses, I can't necessarily figure out if there's something I'm supposed to do that's specific or if this is, you know, sort of like Toriel and having to spare her mm -hmm. 40, 26 times. Like, is this just a waiting game or, and like a just don't deviate from your path thing? Or do I have to keep trying different things to figure out where we're going? Okay, actually, I think this is a good place to pause and take a break. So when we come back, we can talk about the battle system in a little bit more detail. And I think address this this uh, concern that you're bringing up right now. And we can also talk a little bit more about the rest of the game and your, your kind of moment by moment experiences through the game. Uh, but for now, let's take a quick break, and I'm going to play the Snowden theme, which I think is one of the all-time great winter game so, themes. So good. So we'll be right back.
And we're back. So we've been talking a lot generally about this battle system, which is one of Undertale's core distinguishing features. So maybe we can go into a little bit more detail about what's going on in the battle system and how it differentiates itself from, you know, other other RPG battle systems. So with with any given interaction, you have the option to either fight in uh, the violent sense or to um, talk to creatures is another one of the prompts. And uh, when you choose the talk option for each enemy, including um, like random encounter little sort of nobody enemies, you'll have a completely different set of options of single um, verbs of of how you talk to them. So they might be console, they might be bully or not bully. Or flirt. Flirt, um, look at or not look at. Um, there's so really, really varied. Every single one is different. There's no uniform path that will work with every every baddie or even every baddie of a certain type. Um, and so this produces honestly a a pretty varied little puzzle system embedded in sort of every encounter if you choose to not just fight, which which you can. Um, but one of the things that's important to know about choosing the sort of pacifist route, which is talking <laughs> talking to everybody until they agree not to fight, is that you don't gain experience, which means you don't level up, which means you have like 19 HP until the very end of the mm-hmm. game, um, which you know, the it does get harder because in between each round, like you have your turn and then when the enemy has their turn, you play what I referred to earlier, this little bullet hell mini game that only lasts maybe 10 or 10 seconds or something like that. Yeah, and but- again, we don't want to sell these short. Um, each each enemy has kind of their distinctive, you know, bullet hell scenario. Yeah. And when there are multiple enemies on the screen, those combine in, in interesting ways. And Often then- they change over the course of the battle or in response to what you have done for any single enemy. Like there's a lot of depth in there yeah it's really you really are it does feel like you're playing multiple games at once and you know especially if you go the pacifist route you have you kind of have the bullet hell defense mode and then yeah a puzzle mode whereas if you're playing a neutral or a genocide you're having a kind of a time-based attack right mode right if i remember correctly (laughs) have either of us fought anyone in this game for a not yeah, in a you, long long time you get yeah. this like basically eye picture and and a little slider that goes back and forth it and you have to time it to be to hit the the slider right, over yes. the right over the right place something like that um yeah i only ended up having to well we'll talk about who i ended up having to fight <laughs> as we get going um so that's the basic framework of of all of the battles but, in this game but the point that you're bringing up earlier is that um you know, when you are doing that little puzzle section, some enemies are more difficult than others. Some enemies you can kind of use whatever talky option and you do it, you know, twice and they'll, yeah. um, you'll have the option to show the mercy and they'll kind of disappear. But some you have to get them, it's, it's a little more complicated to get them into kind of the mercy state. And you, you know, you have to experiment with different options. Sometimes you have to do different talking options in a certain order. Yep. And often the game will give you really good feedback about what's working and what's not. But sometimes the feedback is a little bit more vague. Yeah. And in those cases, I, I do agree that it can get it can get frustrating. Um, and yeah, like with the papyrus fight, I think that's a fight where it's just survive a certain number of turns. Yeah. But again, I, I don't know for sure. And and that's the thing with this the battle system is that sometimes it's opaque enough that you aren't really sure if um, the talking is even working. Yeah. Or if it's an if it's a kind of an endurance run. And I get that you know that 
uh, the opacity is kind of part of the game, but also yep. can be a little bit frustrating. Well, and also, you know, I can make an argument to make that resonate and fit perfectly well with the game's broader themes. Mm-hmm. But I also still have to say that as a gameplay experience, it it pulls me out of it pulls me further away from my the the choices I'm making as that character. Sure, and it, yeah, and like you said, it is hard. And you know, Toby Fox has mentioned this. He's he he says you know in a lot of games the the more like the you know to get the good ending is usually the easier route right and he wanted to make this game at the very least to have a, a little bit more challenging to actually get the good ending where by, by by and large the neutral route is the easiest to accomplish but if you want one of the more extreme routes you actually have to work a little bit harder and, and struggle a little bit more with the systems one related thing i want to say in this game's favor is that i really like how random battles are handled here in general I think they're paced really well, which is hard to do. I think in an RPG, they're not so frequent that you feel like you're being interrupted when you're just trying to move through the space. You also, you know, they're varied enough and there's enough different creature designs. I don't think I encountered any one sort of random battle enemy more than a couple of times over the course of the game. Like, unless you were really grinding, which the only reason you would do that is if you were doing a genocide run to level up, Mm -hmm. you really like you do not get tired of seeing the same thing over and over again, which like that is one of the signature experiences of the JRPG. I think really is like being like, Oh my God, I cannot fight another one of these guys. Yeah. And it, and it is interesting. Like you said that they associate that, you know, often maligned aspect of JRPGs with the genocide run, having to fight constant streams of enemies and, and grinding, especially right. Yeah. That, that um, you know, if you're playing this game for the good ending, you by definition, don't grind. Right. Like, yeah, the the genocide is just a normal JRPG playthrough. Yes, except, <laughs> I mean, it it's difficult. So the difficulty scales much more differently, and it actually gets really hard at the end. Oh. And, um, and you, so if you do the genocide run, your final boss is actually Sans himself. Oh, okay. Who is uh, reportedly incredibly difficult, and I've watched him play, and he played, and he's incredibly difficult. Okay. Um, but the other thing is that you do, it's not that you just have to kill everything you encounter, it's that you have to kill all the possible random battles or all the mm-hmm. possible random enemies. So um, after a certain point, I think if you're doing the genocide run, um, your save point will actually tell you how many more random encounters are left in the area. Oh my God. And you have to exhaust all the random like encounters. Like hunt down every random thing in the bushes, basically. And yes. like, okay. And, and so slaughter literally everything okay. to get the genocide run. So, and genocide, not just the fighting one. <laughs> yeah. So it's 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 pretty brutal, both, you know, mechanically and uh, I think, you know, emotionally for sure. the player. And, you know, the interesting thing about the genocide run is that, um, as I mentioned, you know, Sans confronts you at the end. Um, and I think Flowey even confronts you too. And I can't remember which one of them it is. I think it's probably Sans who makes the point that, you know, he can, he understands you and he knows you're not doing the genocide run because you're truly evil. You're just doing it because you can, because you want to see the extra content, basically. And so it's calling out you as the player, knowing that, you know, the only reason you'd be going through this process, this tedium, is because you want to see right. the third ending. Right. Which... Yeah, I think, you know, you'd you'd feel pretty seen at that point, because I don't know any other reason, hopefully, that you'd be going through that, except that you want to see, you know, all the content in the game, even if it requires you to act in this way. Right. Because even, even, you know, if you just, like, didn't fully grasp what was going on and you ended up fighting in all of the major battles, you still wouldn't hunt down every elusive no. last thing. So that's, like, a special... That's it. Yeah, it's very, it's very intentional. Right. I think, you know, that's the thing. It's both the pacifist and the genocide run have to be done very intentionally. Yeah. Um, 
you know, so that's basically what you're doing in this game, at least in terms of the in terms of the battles. But I'm really curious to know what you thought about the rest of the game, the other characters you encounter, the rest of the story. The game is structured very much by area. Yeah. And each area is kind of associated with one character. And so Snowden is the sans papyrus space, if you will. From there, you go on to Waterfall. It's very much associated with this new character you encounter, Undyne. So I love everything about how Undyne is introduced, framed, and then turns out. The entire Undyne arc is like just about as well as this game works for me. So you are before you have your first face-to-face encounter with Undyne, you are hearing from other characters about Undyne, this incredible warrior on behalf of the king, um, who's on a mission to collect a human soul and is hunting down you, this human child. Um And the whole sequence as you leave Snowden and head sort of towards Waterfall where you're going to encounter her, you spend a lot of it. It's such a tonal shift from Snowden. And and one of the things that I I found unexpectedly beautiful is there's a bunch of areas just shortly out of Snowden where the, um, I'm going to say lighting, but I mean that in like air quotes, because this is is all a very pixely, very sort of um, beauty in the ugly sort of designed game. Um, but you have these long sequences with with this effect of being lit from the left where like your character's face can be in shadow and through and a lot of it you can see the castle sort of ominously in the background. And for long segments of it, when you're heading towards Waterfall, the next main location, you have this little yellow monster that's like really top heavy. Its head is kind of too big for its body and it falls over all the time that is just obsessed with Undyne and is like so stoked to go see her kick some butt and never quite figures out that you're the one that she's hunting. And so every time she comes by, you know, there's sequences where she comes by and you have to like hide and stay still in this tall grass and she like sniffs around and stabs her spear into stuff. And when you first meet her, she's just a suit of armor. Like you can't see anything about her her characteristics. Um, and then eventually you see her as this sort of like fish person warrior and eventually, of course, you're going to end up having your showdown with her where you fight her and sort of eventually kind of win her over. But her personality... There's a lot of running away from her. There's a, You spend a lot of time, and I love this in a game where a game lets you live in the fear of the confrontation <laughs> and like you spend a lot of time trying to avoid it. Uh, we've talked a lot you know, on this show about how the moment when you actually turn and decide to fight deflates so much of the fun tension. And I, mean, I, I like how dangerous Undyne feels in this part of the game. Yeah. I mean, especially if you're doing a pacifist run, because you're not defeating her, you're just running away from her. And then even like the running away is um, she's shooting her spears at you. So you have to dodge those. And really the only way you can quote unquote defeat her in the pacifist run is you just make it to the next area, which is hot land, which is too hot for her to survive and just collapses from heat exhaustion. Yeah. <laughs> and then, yeah, you can give her the cup of water. And then that's how you start building your friendship. Yeah, which I did. Yeah, and actually one of my favorite things is there is there is a sequence where she is literally chasing you. And even once you sort of flee from battle or like get to a certain point, you just both appear back on the screen on the map and she will pursue you. And if she reaches you again, you'll be drawn back into battle. So there's literally a whole sequence where you are just running straight for for Hotland. Um and that that whole thing for me just works so well. And also, you know, Undyne is kind is a very silly and very extreme character um, that doesn't have a lot of the sort of uh, deep earnestness that some of the other characters do. And is also like we can just say it peak Tumblr lesbian bait. Like she's like 
this this big tough like battle lady who's like a head and a half taller than every other character and like is super intense and like loves to blow things up and have fun like you know i know what i'm being pandered to <laughs> um and sometimes the pandering this game is full of pandering and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't um but i think you know undyne because they let her she's a real character but they also let her just be kind of this like fun chaos element to be around um i think that is really welcome at this point in the story especially as a counterpoint to how fearsome she is at it coming in yeah and then as with sans i'm not even sure if we mentioned this but once you kind of you know befriend them or in this case you know give undane the water you can go on a date with them and uh and that's again again uh, an essential part of doing the pure pacifist run is really spending time with these characters and befriending them and um you know kind of it's it gets you off track, you know, of the forward yeah. momentum of the plot. Did you enjoy these kind of downtime moments with the characters? Did they feel pandering or forced? I'm curious what your take was on on the the dates. Yeah, I definitely see how it it does sort of stop the plot. I mean, I I had different amounts of fun and delight depending on how much I liked the characters. Um, Papyrus is fun, but goes on too long. I think um, Undines is like just unhinged in a way that i found truly fun she kind of still hates you at the point when you go on the date like papyrus kind of makes it happen and then most of it is her like trying to serve you a nice cup of tea or whatever in her kitchen and just her whole house ends up on fire and she's like oh well and like kind of runs off her house also is a fish that's like kind of shaped like her head it's really sick so i i don't know i i don't know I, I was wary when, because my, okay, so the first one that I went on, because I think it's the first one you can get, was with Papyrus. Yes. And when he was like, oh, we're going on a date, I was a little apprehensive, because I could imagine in this game there being a sincere sort of like romance, like who did you right. go on a date with option. Even though you're a child. Even though you're a child, and even though, even though a lot of things, right? <laughs> so I was a little bit wary about that. But when you start hanging out with Papyrus, you're just chilling. He's just telling you stuff. And then by the end, he concludes that you're in love with him and tells you, I'm sorry, I just don't feel the same way, but I'll be cool about it because we're friends now. So it like it de-escalates those. I think I wish they weren't like dressed up as dates in that mm-hmm. language. I wish it was just like time to hang out, especially because, you know, later on, you also participate in sort of helping Alphys and Undyne, who have feelings for each other, get together. Like, there is the presence of, like, actual mm-hmm. sort of dating in this in this universe. So, I don't know. It, it, like, it set off alarm bells for me for a minute, and then I ended up being like, this is okay, but I sort of wish it was, I wish the the window dressing was different. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. And so, you, so you mentioned Alphys, who is the main kind of NPC of the next area, which is Hotland, which is this volcanic area, and so and that's where you really encounter Alphys, who's the royal scientist, and then Alphys's uh, invention, Metaton. I love Metaton. I love Metaton. I think I feel about Metaton the way most people seem to feel about Sans, who I didn't <laughs> care about at all. Um, okay, so what was your beef with Sans? I don't have a beef with Sans. I just on the scale of these care, if I was ranking these friend characters he's wondering why he has his hands in his pockets all the time no he's he's just like a kind of indifferent cool guy i mean it's sweet he does genuinely care about papyrus even though he also like roasts him constantly he's like my brother's so lame he's so cool (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, and that's really fun. But he's just sort of like an aloof mm. guy who makes puns. And also, I think like, especially because he's so like the face of Undertale publicly, I was like, this guy? <laughs> you know, like, I think the others had the benefit of not having all that stuff, all that momentum sure, already yeah. behind them. So, you know, it's not saying he stands is fine. Sans is totally fine. He's a he's a great guy. And, and along those lines, like, I'm, I'm curious that you, you know, you you gravitate towards in this section Metaton and instead of Alphys. OK, I have a big problem with the character of Alphys in this. OK. Yeah. And it touches a little bit of my stuff with the relationship between this game and fandom and it actually touches a little bit on how well i think some of the themes and ideas expressed through the battle system and through the world of this game sort of work as when you look at them as like more than a game okay um so met so just in short alpha as we said is royal scientist um she has been uh researching um, an alternate way for the monsters to break the barrier and get out of be able to reintegrate with humans and get out of the underground because the current way that king's going about it is super dark he's he's if he gets seven human souls he can break the barrier and he's got six so that's why he wants your character's soul um but on the way she created this robot called metaton that she created to be like an entertainment robot like she loves like anime and like human entertainment programs and so he's basically like a little tv shaped game show host that shows up and has all that like grandiosity of persona and stuff like that um but he's on he's stuck on like permanent aggro mode so every time you encounter him there's a fight and every time it's intense and alphys is kind of tottering along trying to find ways to like stop him or impede him or shut him down or whatever um and the final showdown with him is him in this he gains this whole like body and becomes neo metaton and has kind of this like david bowie like glam rock kind of in heels kind of thing um it's great i absolutely absolutely love love that character um so here's my here's my thing with alphys um you meet her first in her lab where you figure out pretty quickly that she's been basically watching your she's got a, had a camera pinned on your character <laughs> this entire time. She's been watching you. It's very much sort of implied that you're a bit like on sort of the same level or on par with, you know, some of the fictional TV series and stuff mm -hmm. that she is obsessed with. <laughs> like that's that's sort of in the mix. She is very much designed to be like the um uh dorky uh tumblr anime girl of like 2010 like that's that's very much her persona she's like very socially awkward very sweaty very horny <laughs> um like loves anime kind of like Neh. um that's what you should be picturing with alpha she's a little lizard cute design but a, uh, this is a place where the pandering and earnestness started to grate on me. Okay. I've, I felt bullied into identifying with Alphys when I don't whatsoever, <laughs> which is maybe why I became a Metaton stan. <laughs> it's like, get her ass. Um, and so, okay. So I have a problem with how Alphys's storyline plays out that is actually, I think, not trivial for the implications of this game. I don't know if I just read this wrong. So I'm interested in your take on this. So 
one of, to me, the very interesting points in this is, um, so Alphys has been calling you on your phone really regularly, helping you like navigate puzzles and turn off security systems gone haywire and this whole lab thing that you're getting through to try to like get some Metaton, shut him down, get up to the city. And Alphys has sort of said that she's she's so excited to meet you and to be part of this and she's going to help you and she's going to overcome her fears. There's like a lot of, a lot of... um weight has been put on how Alphys is really going to back you. And she will call at key moments and like turn off lasers or say, oh, just do this and then I can take that down. She's terrible with lasers. She's super bad with lasers. Um, And even, you know, in stuff with Metaton, she'll often be like, oh, there's another setting on on your that I've uploaded into his programming. You can do this and then it'll have some effect. So... In your final fight with Metaton, he says something at the very beginning of, you know, before you even really get into it, where he says, um, you know, she only created me and all these security systems and keeps sicking them on you so that she can be part of your story and keep coming to your rescue. Even right now, she's standing outside waiting for the right moment to rush in here and be the hero of of this story with you. And that felt really real because um, you moments later hear that Alphys is, in fact, standing outside and is like trying to get into the room and, and trying to get into the room. I'm mm-hmm. saying that in air quotes now. But you continue with the fight with Metaton, which is fair enough because he's trying to kill you. So like, what are you going to do? You still got to fight him. You get through the whole thing. Alphys does burst in at an opportune moment very close to the end and ends up kind of being more concerned with being able to repair Metaton is like, oh, good. It's just that his battery is is fried or whatever, um, as opposed to being like, oh, it's a relief that you took this like absolute psycho out of rotation <laughs> in our in our world of peaceful monsters because he was like a killing machine. And something about that idea just stuck with me and it's never addressed. And you continue in all your or at least in the pacifist run in the like goody goody run um you continue to accept alphys as a friend you work to help her at a bunch of junctures including uh you know in her, her budding relationship with undyne after in your sort of after your final fight when you have to return and do a little bit more stuff in sort of the the second second run ish you discover a whole incredibly dark secret lab that she had that resulted in some pretty horrifying pretty horrifying shit and when it comes time you know to sort of address that with her you sort of do the like no i still accept you route um i mean you realize that she is the cause of the main villain yeah which is a consequence of taking the king's dead son's essence and trying to infuse it into a flower yeah. Which makes Flowey become kind of genocidal. Yeah. We're not going to get there's into a bunch the, of stuff. The yeah. Plot, the, but- like, there's a lot. There would be a lot to explain there. Also, you know, on the way, she tried to do these like, uh, you know, soul and or determination infusion experiments on monsters that were near death and created these horrifying amalgamations that are just like awful. Like she created a full lab of nightmares. Mm-hmm. Um, like it's not good. And. I think one of my problems with it is that you you just like this this is a point where the pacifist run becomes like modeling 
having no boundaries or no judgment or no accountability for anyone ever, which I don't know that that's something that I can really get on board with. Like, I there's no there's no point. Alpha doesn't apologize. She doesn't really own up to any. I mean, she kind of apologizes. She's kind of like, yeah, the lab got out of hand. But like the other stuff with Medita never goes addressed. And so I I just think like I understand the game's general premise, which is about like the ability to show compassion, even really challenging places and even when really like uh, faced with aggression. You know, this is like, you know, core stuff that we that we've all heard. I think at a certain point when it when it is willing to step past any sort of like accountability or acknowledgement and jump straight to the like it doesn't matter what you've done we're going to love you anyway. Like why though? <laughs> mm-hmm. Um you know I I and and the question of of like forgiveness in this becomes I think really important to me because I mean I know I mean, that it, like I mean you you alluded to this before but the other thing that's going on also and it's related to Alphys is that at, at this point um there've been other fallen children before yep. you who the king has ostensibly murdered and taken their souls. Yeah, so that sucks and everybody loves the king still. Mm-hmm. Everybody's fully on side <laughs> with the king. Exceptorial. Exceptorial, yeah. Um who in hindsight somewhat rules. So yeah, I just like I know I know in some cases there can be, you know, there are there are edge cases where, you know, people make the decision to forgive even where there hasn't been restitution or or um, effort at healing the relationship just because they feel like they need to let go of it to be able to move on. But I just don't think this is like, you know, Alphys is presented for the full endgame as like one of your squads mm-hmm. of best friends. Like, here's all our buddies, like undyne and and papyrus and like all your friends along the way and alphys and it's like this is not we're not friends like this is not a basis for being besties and i i guess maybe we can link this back to as well like the the game's morality system yes whereas because for the player the game in order to get you know your your good ending you need to be an absolutist yeah there is like you do have to be accountable as the player. There is no room for you to make any error if you want to get your good ending. And so I, I think you're right that what's going on narratively conflicts with what's happening mechanically at the at this level. Whereas you know the game wants to say one thing about, um, you know, you need to keep hitting the mercy button 26 times with yes. Toriel. You cannot waver for a second um, if you want to. If you want to, you know, achieve the good ending and be seen by everybody in the game as, you know, a good person. Yeah. Whereas the characters that you encounter are given so much more leeway. Yeah. Yeah. And and I just think that's... As a game mechanic, I love that. I think that's really great as a thing to to play around with mm-hmm. in the world of of games and as part of, you know, the history of JRPGs and stuff. I think it gets it gets tough for me when we start to look at, like, is this what is this what does this game want to say about mm-hmm. larger you know human relationships and writ large and, and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, and I mean al- along the lines of of the the complexity of you having to really fully commit to one thing or another is in that light. I I've been trying to think through how I feel about the first Asgore fight, which is okay, the final so, boss of the game. Okay, so let's let's get there just to yeah. kind of situate us in the game. So you get through this metaton section. And then 
basically from there, after you defeat Metaton, you are on your way to confront the king, Asgore. Yeah. And then so, um, yeah, with Alpha's help, you eventually get to, you get to Asgore, you confront him, and then the battle commences. It's your turn, and uh, you're going to do what you've done the whole way so far and and uh, use your mercy command. Yeah, Try and but it takes the mercy command fully away. It deletes it off your screen. I mean, Asgore does that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's like Asgore says there can be no mercy. We have to fight to the death. Yeah. So this is in some ways, I guess, the first moment you're meeting a character that is as strong-willed as you. I think that's part mm-hmm. of what the game is is saying there is that every other character in this world is malleable to your response except for except for this one. So I still Okay, what has this what has this game been teaching me up to this point? It's been teaching me even in the face of ludicrous resistance and feeling like you are making no progress. For example, because you've only tried to mercy Toriel 23 times and you need 26. Mm-hmm. You persist. You persist no matter what this game throws at you. You persist 100% of the time because any deviance from the pacifist path is going to turf your entire thing. So, by God, I did not attack hmm. Asgore for a long damn time. I think I died three or four times to him, having just done me- semi-meaningless cycles through some of the talk options, which they do a little bit of a thing. They lower his attack slightly and lower his defense mm-hmm. slightly. And you see him respond emotionally to what you're doing. You do get the sense that he doesn't take any joy in this, but also that he's determined to do it. And so I don't know how I feel about the fact that at the end you have to f- you actually have to fight Asgore. Um, and I think like... So- it, it, yeah, I mean, in that moment, it does take... You know, the morality system just becomes pure mechanic, right? That can just be taken away from you. Like when you don't have the button anymore, yeah. then you cannot... Even though, like you said, like you can you can be passive. You can talk and you can defend. But as soon as the button disappears, that option disappears. Right, right? It but- becomes really gamey in that sense. And also in the logic of this game, something could completely happen to put that button back on my screen. Like this game plays around with stuff or, with what your prompt options are. Or I think, are. you know, like the more interesting thing is kind of what you did where at that moment is in order to kind of like pass this check based on everything you've learned, you know, even though that option is gone, you as the player should have learned that the point is to persist. Yeah. You know, I think that could have actually had kind of fit in really well mechanically with what the game is trying to say. Yeah. Well, and so... I mean, one other thing, speaking of the sort of my philosophical challenges with the pacifist run and how it punishes you and doesn't let you punish others, um, by the time I got to Asgore, before I had my first fight with him, understanding that, like, you can go downstairs from his room and see seven little coffins Mm -hmm. laid out and there's bodies in the other six and yours is just there waiting for you, right? Like, it's dark. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mentally was like, I'm going to, this kid is going to choose to sacrifice himself Mm. to be the seventh soul that like repairs this harm that the humans have done to the monsters who he is now friends with and, you know, unleash this thing and also not leave Asgore with the guilt of having to kill him like non-consensually. Like that's where I thought this was going because that is in some ways, I think the natural logical conclusion of the pacifist run. Like I think- it, it either is that thing about persistence where maybe after you die a certain number of times while trying to not attack, he recognizes something, you know, mm-hmm. something happens with the persistence theme or this this thing of like, I will take any punishment, but I will never give aggression or retaliation or like 
a different way to say that in the 21st century might be like boundaries, mm-hmm. um, is that I will just sacrifice my entire self to let this open. And so that's also partially why part of me thought the first time I died that like, oh, this maybe this is actually a fight you have to lose, which is also a thing that JRPGs do sometimes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, okay, he opens the barrier, something weird happens because we've got time shifts and stuff happening in this game. And then I'll go back and do something else. And that's not it. You actually just have to, you have to keep fighting him. You have to fight him until he gets so low that he's like approaching a deadly range, which makes you start thinking about whether you are actually going to have to like deliver the final blow Mm -hmm. and actually kill him. And then he stops you before that point. Of course, you don't have to. And then he gets killed by Flowey. You go into a whole psychedelic nightmare battle thing with Flowey, which is really cool. Um, but it just that whole segment, I I still am like trying to map that onto the logics of what the game has been teaching the player about itself and about its its internal um, sort of ideology and its view of the world. And I I still just can't quite square it. I I like the idea that there are some people who are. I think I need the idea that there are some people who are just not open to your little whatever you're doing. Like, I think that's a real part of the dynamics that this game is trying to talk about. I just don't know that this is, I think this is a hard reversal. Um, this is a difficult reversal um, this late in the game. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that, yeah, I think that makes sense. And, and you know, the game doesn't really sit with that. Yeah, you're just moving right on. <laughs> um, because, yeah, ultimately what happens is that Flowey appears and on, on your first run will just, you know, kill Asgore. Yeah. And then you have to fight um, this like hideous Flowey. It's like, is- I've been trying to think about how to describe it because it's a completely different art style than anything else in the game. It's like, it's like a, a possessed Monty Python <laughs> illustration. Like it's sort of collage art. But still with like a big bullet I, hell thing. I think he's and... known as Photoshop Flowey in this, okay. in this iteration. All right. Yep. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it is kind of visually really striking battle. And then from that, you kind of, you'll almost inevitably die and you keep resetting, keep resetting and eventually kind of get through. Um, and through this is kind of when you have to kind of reset a little bit and then you can kind of finish you kind of have to replay a little bit of the end game and this is where you can go into this lab learn more about the story learn about this sad history of like flowey's how flowey came to be yeah um and then realize that flowey's actually um the the soul it contains the soul of the king's dead son and then you have to kind of fight this um kind of tainted reincarnation of of the son's soul and kind of purify it yeah. in a sense by calling on um, all of the other fallen humans. Yeah. Um, in a very much from Earthbound, like you have to in Earthbound to beat the final boss, you have to use Paula's prey prompt, which up until that point has been pretty useless in okay. the game. <laughs> Can sometimes get you some some health back, sometimes get you some things, but it's really the only way to finish the game is you have to kind of Paula prays and and summons kind of the power of all their friends okay. who who you learn are thinking about you and you know with the with that power you can kind of defeat the bad guy. Okay. And so it's very much borrowing from that very directly. Yeah. But what, did you think that was an earned ending? Um, sort of. I think. I think again, thematically, I I had a hard time getting past that interaction with with Asgore, and I think I just sort of like relaxed and let the ending wash over me mm-hmm. from there. Like I think 
I felt like we had sort of departed in some ways enough from some of the core elements of the game that I had been playing. Like when you get to that flowy section, it feels like a different game. And well, he, I, I he's, mean, the other thing about this is it, and again, this might be a comment on JRPGs, but it does that thing where you get a very last minute lore dump. Yeah, yeah. Where it's, and also secret final boss who's like a cosmic horror. <laughs> kind of, yeah, and it, you know it overturns everything you know about the game everything you thought was simple is really is much more complicated there are these you know vessels of souls yeah there's a lot of stuff so there is kind of this this larger lore that uh, you know for fans of the game they get really into it i mean you get this character i mean the first thing you do when you start the game is you name this character you never hear from again and then towards the end you realize that that character is the one is one of the fallen children who befriended yeah, the king's son, and so you. But it's it's the pacing of the story is very much, and I, I assume it's intentional. It's very much JRPG pacing, yeah. where <laughs> you get some plot at the beginning, just doing a journey, very simple, and then in the last five minutes, yeah. you just get you kill God. Yeah, you get and <laughs> and they're just trying to keep up with all of this lore really that's yeah. coming at you really quickly and trying to make sense of it all. Yeah, yeah, I think that's it. And then um, again, I've I've so I thought the. The, the section of Alpha's secret lab, I I liked how dark and, and creepy it was. I, I mean, as you mentioned, though, the, there's so much the the undertones of this game are so dark and the game does a good job of covering them over, but they're still always present. So really, this last lab is is just kind of uncovering like, the underbelly that's, all, that's <laughs> yeah. always there. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I you know, I do appreciate that. That's a little bit of um, vinegar that balances out some of the sweet in this game in a way that I do appreciate. Um, but some of the, like I said, some of the ramifications of that, it feels worse after playing that, that they aren't really like dealt with in any way other than this sort of like saintly child who will like never say a bad word or like do any harm to anyone regardless of anything that they have, have done themselves. So... <sighs> I don't know. It's fine. Like, does any JRPG earn their ending? Earthbound. Okay. I mean, I haven't. So I haven't played Earthbound. I, I've I've played you know two hours of or something of the start of it, and not got far oh, into sorry it. Sorry for but spoiling that ending for you. <laughs> no, you know what? Honestly, I'll forget. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, like, it just doesn't bother me that much. Like, I think it 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 gets further away from the things that I really loved and responded to about this game in those moments. But part of me is like, yes, yeah, doing JRPG shit is fine, <laughs> which is, that sounds very glib, but like sincerely, you know, I did, you know, I did find it genuinely touching to um, sort of have the character be reunited in a sense, I guess, with um, Asriel, who's the, who's the King's son, which in the final fight, which is against sort of evil Asriel, released from the form of Flowey, you again have to do what I will now call the Paula move, where he has trapped and absorbed the souls of now all of your friends, plus Alphys, and the king and queen also. And um, you have to save and like call forth all of the souls of your friends who were like trapped inside him, and they mm-hmm. burst free, and then they help you. And you realize that the final soul you, that's still in there you have to call forth is the the soul of like the child version of Asriel when he died that's like still in there somewhere. And so you call him and you save him and then you sort of get to see him in just his his childlike form and your character, you know, goes and like gives him a hug. And so I think at this point it it starts to work for me again because it's sort of reconnecting with um 
something that I liked from actually the tutorial section, which is that this is actually just a child. Like you, by this point, you have like done so much, braved the lab, seen the abominations, fought several gods, killed a flower, not killed anybody else. You've done a lot of shit by this point, mm-hmm. right? And, um, you know, it's something I was thinking about in the tutorial section, which is that like part of her babying and trying to take good care of you is like, yeah, your character looks like they're like five years old. Oh, yeah. Your character's like, a child. Toriel is responding appropriately mm-hmm. to the child that is in front of her. Right. And um, and I think that I, I really like the idea that like, oh, maybe we're going to be actually engaging with what it means to have a child protagonist in this game, which is a thing that a lot of JRPGs do in different ways. Right. And so at this point, you're sort of returned to that feeling of like. Right. These are like children, like these are like damaged children. And that's sort of at the core of mm-hmm. like why everyone in this game is like not acting right. So, you know, it, it sort of sticks that landing and Asriel knows that he has to release the souls that are inside him and he has to sort of let himself go. Like he doesn't get to stay in this world. He doesn't get to really go to the surface with his parents. And so that's all that's like a, a genuine moment of of healing and like reconciliation that I think works with a lot of the themes um, so yeah, I mean, I, I certainly like that better than the Asgore transition into flower fight ending, but you know, I think you have to be generous with endings of games that are trying to do a lot. I mean, there is one big lingering question. Did you accept Toriel as your true mother? I didn't. Duh! I know. I felt so bad with how dejected she seemed afterwards, but like. She's the best game mom. She is. She's a good game mom, but I was like doesn't this kid have family? Like, is this kid then just disappeared forever and his family gets to, like, grieve his loss and he just lives with this monster lady? Like, he's done enough. <laughs> like, let that kid go back and be a kid. Like, don't... Just because a child has had to take on too much, <laughs> more than they should have had to early in their life, doesn't mean you can keep treating them like like a little adult. They're still a child. They deserve to go back and have a normal life. Poor Tario. Yeah, she was so sad. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> So do you have any final thoughts? Yeah, I have one. Um, I think this game is really special. And also, in a way, it feels very Obama era to me. Mm. This feels very embedded in a time that feels so far away um, spiritually. And I wonder if I played this in 2015, if I would feel differently about it. Not just because I would be younger at the time. Um, I think I still was probably a good like five years older than most of the people who really like fell head over heels for this game, but I would have been closer. And I think, I think like, we were all just different at that point. Um, and it, something funny happened that when I was, so I was Googling something specific about Undertale and one of the first articles that came up was um, Griffin McElroy in Polygon arguing that Undertale should have been Polygon's game of the year and it didn't even make the top 10. And that feels right. You know, I think that there's sort of a, a like um, sincere open-heartedness and like a, um, uh, you know, you and I both listen to Adventure Zone and, and I think... Uh, yeah, I think you can see this game all over Adventure Zone. Yeah, I, I fully agree. I think like that sort of, if you know anything about how the McElroy sort of like brand and present themselves i think this is like the same thing i said about steven universe this is also mm-hmm. like the McElroy club is is also you know connected to to this sort of this sort of thing um and in a way i sort of like 
grieve that I don't feel like I can like totally give myself mm-hmm. over to that anymore. But yeah, just it just feels like I'm in I'm in a different place. I feel too old for this game. That's my final thought. All right. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Um, as always, if you enjoyed it, please uh, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, whatever you are using to listen. You can find out more information about the show at neverwasagamer.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at neverwasagamer. Yeah, thanks so much for listening. So we have one more game in the Playing in Michelle's Wheelhouse arc, which is a game that is very much in her wheelhouse because it has tactics. Yeah. It has JRPG influence. Yeah. It has chocobos. Hell yeah. It's Final (laughs) Fantasy Tactics. Hell yeah. But we're actually only going to get to that in the new year because our next episode is going to be our annual, now annual, holiday (laughs) special. And like last time, we're going to do a bunch of things. We're going to give out our end of the year awards based on the games we've played. We are going to have Michelle rank all the games that she's played this year. (laughs) Tier rank. For the show. And we are going to do our game gift exchange where we give each other a new game to play that we think the other would enjoy. And uh, and then we'll chat about that for a bit as well. So hope to see you here on the 23rd of December for our holiday episode because playing with new toys and ranking naughty boys (laughs) is an essential part of being a gamer.